Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Elkshade Podcast. Today I'm sitting down with probably the strongest guy I've ever talked to on a podcast. That's right, his name's Brandon Lilly, former power strength competitor, Westside Barbell, if you know about them. We'll dig into that on the pod. Uh, his numbers are insane. He's a really gnarly stud dude who's um, working for Sornix now, and uh, he's a hunter. He's a, a fitness guy and a hunter, just a perfect fit for our podcast. Really enjoyed getting to know Brandon and Lily today, and I think you guys are as well. So without further ado, this is the Elk Shape Podcast. Here we go. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast Season 6 with your host, Dan the Fitness Man. Thank you for tuning in. We are excited to have you. This is the podcast that is dedicated to hard work, disciplined decisions, and year-round training in the pursuit of the best possible version of ourselves. We leverage elk hunting to create a pathway. We understand that time is finite and we cannot squander a second. We must be leaders at our home. We understand that faith is our number one priority. Then family, then fitness, then health, then wealth. Our year-round disciplined decisions help us leave a legacy for our family to follow. You will leave here motivated, inspired, and educated. We bring on a wide variety of guests, subject matter experts, so that you can tune in, get what you need to get, and continue on your journey. We are blessed to call ourselves Elk Hunters, Season 6. Here we go. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to the cast. We're we're joined by Brandon and Lily. And where are you today, Brandon? What state? Uh, right now in Ohio. Of course, right? Where Where's home for you? Kentucky is home. Um, I've lived in Ohio before, and uh, I trained at Westside Barbell up here back in 2009, 2010, and uh, ended up moving back to Kentucky. That was really, really good for me. Um, 
just to be closer to, to home base, family, friends. And, uh, you know, it was, it was good. I mean, it, it's been a great place for me, obviously working for Sornex remotely. Um, it, it's been, it's been a lot more beneficial to be there than I thought it would. Um, sometimes you think you have to be in-house to get the best job done, but it's been a great relationship with Sornex Outdoors, Sornex Proper, and uh, Kentucky's just been a good place for me. So it's it's not going to be home forever, but it's uh, it's been it's been a good midpoint, you know. So where's HQ for Sornex? That's in uh, it's in South Carolina, Lexington, South Carolina, just peripheral to Columbia. Okay, how long have you been doing Sornex Outdoors, Sornex uh, Proper? So that kind of starts. It's a little bit bigger than just uh, employment because in 2012-13 I was asked to be a guest speaker at Summer Strong event which is it's around our exercise equipment and um, you know I was was a world champion power lifter at the time 300 plus pounds I was like 320 pounds and uh, I got to speak there and the funny thing about that event and the funny thing about Sornex as a whole you know I'm sure you understand this. I was invited there to speak. So you kind of have this air about yourself where it's like, I'm the man, right? Especially then. I mean, I was ego driven completely because it was like, you have to have some of that for that competitive edge. But I would say that mine was a little bit over the top. Like I got started to believe in the hype a little bit, but I walk into Sornex, I meet Bert and, uh, you know, I'm walking in like I'm King Kong, think I'm the best thing in the world. And he goes, well, hey, Brandon, I'd like you to meet a friend of mine. This is uh, Judd Logan. He's a four-time U.S. Olympian in the hammer throw, and he's a coach at Ashland, coach more national champions than anyone else. And meet this guy, Jeff. He was a team member of SEAL Team 6. And it was just like my my confidence started falling down the totem pole. But the great thing about Sornex and the people that Bert has cultivated, I call him the nucleus, you know, because his energy dictates the people around him. And to be honest, every room that I'm in, that Sornex organizes is full of some of the most high caliber people. And I'm sure that everybody has their moments and everybody has their bad days. But generally speaking, those rooms are filled with people that I would want to be around. You know what I mean? They're just high quality, very, very giving, very, very uh, humble, you know, in an industry like strength conditioning or the outdoors where you see so much of the opposite. I think Bert has always had a pretty good pulse on bringing in the right kind of people. So from 2012-13 until I got had a catastrophic injury, basically a career ender, uh, I kept lifting through that just to kind of prove a point to myself. But um, 19 surgeries on my left knee starting in 2014. And then I had lost every sponsor. Every single sponsor was like, hey, man, when you get back on your feet, we'll, we'll be back. Uh, got to pull this back now because you're not lifting, blah, blah, blah. I mean, these are, these are like 48 hours after my injury kind of conversation. Oh, man. So – I saw the writing on the wall, and as I'm sure you could imagine, if, if you couldn't hunt, uh, I mean, you do, a, you do a great job with your bows and your archery talk, but, like, if you couldn't hunt, it really is going to be a limiting factor, and you know that. So that's where I was with, with my injury is I'm not going to be able to, to lift anymore, which keeps you kind of relevant and current. Um, I was doing a bunch of seminars. I was doing three to four seminars a month. Obviously, when you compete and do well, those seminars, they just stay stacked. Through my injury, I had a few, like, what I would call pity invites where gyms would just trying to help me out. And I, and I don't say they were pitying me for, for negative reason. It was just that's the way I felt. Like, I only felt like they cared because I was in a bad place. But um, I went to Bert, and I told him, I said, man, I'm really 
kind of struggling here and I'm going to be in a bad place if I lose my sponsorship. And they weren't doing like tons of money or stuff, but they were, you'd ha they helped me with some equipment. Uh, they helped me with a little bit of travel. So it was just, they were one of my very minute sponsors, but I really, really liked them. And I said, Bert, I need a job. Like I need stability in my life. I haven't had any for a number of years because I was, I heard your podcast with Dudley where he was talking about living in his car and going to the airport to bum a ride just because he saw somebody with another bow case. I was that guy. Me and a guy named Jake Anderson would drive up to Westside at 2 o'clock in the morning and to lift at 8 o'clock. We would drive three hours, sleep for an hour, have breakfast, go train, do that four days a week. So I had that obsessive, you know, I don't need a house. I just need a truck to get me to the gym kind of mentality. And that's who I was. So I told Bert, I was like, that is what I will bring to you as an employee. I will give you everything I have. I just need to be able to pay my bills and know that at the end of the month, I'm okay. Because I wasn't okay. You know what I mean? I was in a really bad place. And uh, he said, I don't know what we can do with you for sure. But I know how you are with people. And I know your personality. And I know that you're driven. So we'll figure something out. So literally, Bert probably saved my life. And what I didn't say before that, I've talked about it a little bit. This was just on the heels of hitting rock bottom, like literally not, not wanting to live anymore, not having any direction. So this was a, this was a call for help to Bert and he didn't know how bad I was like mentally. And just, I, I didn't see a path forward. And as soon as he said, you've got a job, I started to get a little bit of self-confidence back, started to think, okay, this isn't the end of the world. This is a, this is a bad chapter, but it's not the end of the book. So I started to, to work for Bert on the proper side. And that went really well. And then uh, through him, I kind of reinvested back in the outdoors. And he just said, Brandon, do you have any interest in uh, being on the outdoor side of things as we grow this? And I said, absolutely. I just want to be in it as much as I can because that's the only place that, that made me feel good again. You know, um, I'm a very competitive person. I'm a very driven person. I like to tinker and train. So the outdoors offered that through archery, that offered that through my hiking, that offered that through so many re things and resources. Um, when I got hurt, I really started to develop an aversion to the barbell from a fear point. Like I, I just didn't want to get hurt again. So I started doing a lot of kettlebell, mace, body weight training. And that's where I found another evolution of myself. Like it started to feel really good again. And, um, you know, I've made peace with the barbell, so to say, like, it's not, it's not the, the outcast anymore, but I think it was just a, it was part of my healing process as silly and as cliche as that sounds, because people just regurgitate that kind of talk. It really was a healing process for me to even be able to train again. Like I just wanted to train and not dread it or fear it. And through the kettlebells, the mace, body weight stuff, hiking, rucking, I kind of built my body back to a point that's like, well, okay, well, let's see what you can do with a deadlift bar or a squat bar. So it, it's been a full spectrum turnaround to get to the place that I am now, but I wanted to give a little background on how I got to Sornex and the transition that Bert kind of stood by me through. Like he, he really knew that there were some ups and downs when he hired me. They were going to be ups and downs through my story because I was still trying to figure it out, but he took a chance and I, and I would like to think that as you can see right now with the shoot to eat challenge going on and that going really well and the stuff that Bert's done, I think it's, I think it's paid off for both of us. So I don't know yeah. you would say this. That's awesome. So like, what exactly do you do for uh, Sornix Outdoors now? What's your vision? And obviously I'm going to circle back on Westside Barbell because there's going to be some listeners that just don't understand how insane it is that you got to train there. Um, so go ahead. What are you doing with Sornix Outdoors? What's the vision? My job, um, 
my, my job title is marketing and special projects. And okay. what that really falls under is, you know, I'm used in media, uh, collaborate with Ricky Hartsog and Bert and a couple other guys internally. We just look at the direction of the industry, whatever industry, if that's proper, if that's the outdoor side. We look at the players in the industry and we kind of try to weed through that. Like we talked about, you know, not everybody that has a high visibility as far as influence is a quality person. And one of my gifts, I think one of my strengths is I've lived a very diverse life. I've lived, you know, I've been in the darkest bars with the meanest looking guys. I've been in the high end business meetings wearing a suit tie. You know, it's like I've lived a multitude of lives in one and probably my saving grace and my best benefit is I've always had a strong gut feeling about people. Um, and I don't, and I don't extend favor to someone until I've actually shook their hand and looked them in their face. Like I don't, I don't jump. And I mean, you would even might say that with our with you and I, like when we met at TAC, it was like, okay, this dude puts out exact, like to me, what I felt from you is you're exactly what I see on the line. Otherwise, like I would have had a harder time doing this podcast. You know what I mean? So that was great. But that's, that's kind of my job is I feel people out. I get to know them, talk to them. And my first priority is how can I help you? Like I want to help you because in the end, Thornex doesn't make or break if, if you do better or you don't. But if I can help you down the line somewhere, and I'm not saying like I'm doing it for reciprocation, but most people that you do right by do right by you too. And that just has that, that philosophy and that approach to things, the, I can wait for the benefit if there is one and I don't need one versus when I was powerlifting and it's like, get it all right now. I got to have it, got to have it, got to have it. Um, and that just made me feel gross once I got injured and I got to look back on how I did things like bouncing from one company to another, as far as sponsorship, you know, looking at money as the only objective versus integrity. So when I got hurt, I felt like that was a little bit of my karmic effect coming back around to like, hey, dude, you can do better than this, but you've got to struggle a little bit before you can figure out what better is. So when I got with Sorenex, Bert became like a, a real mentor to me, kind of a, a lighthouse in the way he conducted himself. So that, that became how I tried to operate so that we were on the same page and we worked in the same fashion and organization. Um, but that's what I do is, is I really connect with people, connect with brands. Try to find people that are super interesting that nobody else cares about and help them get two steps forward by sharing a story of theirs or sharing their post. Like that's what gives me the most satisfaction from just a, a human standpoint is to shine light on people that I know have value that just can't get looked at because the bullhorns always overcast, you know, and uh, that's because I've had people that did that for me, you know, people that open doorways for me. Freaking Levi Morgan calls me and he's like, hey, man, this is 24-hour notice. He said, hey, man, love you to come down here to Texas and hunt Cactus Jack Ranch with us. And it's it's like, okay, that's that's an amazing phone call in and of itself. But I look back at our relationship and there's three or four things that we've done mutually along the way. And it's like, okay, this is, this is awesome. But it was never, ever a thought in my mind that that would be the, the outcome. And it's just to me, the more that I talk to people, the more I actually hear what they're saying. You know, I try to speak a third of what I listen. You know, I try to figure out what people are actually looking for, what they actually need. Because when people, like, for example, on the sales side, if somebody says they need a home gym, well, I could sell them the biggest rack, the, the most expensive accessory set in the world. But if I say, what do you like to do? And they're like, I like to do kettlebell work. 
like to do body weight work. Well, I just sold them $10,000 worth of stuff they don't want or need. You know, so understanding people's wants, understanding what they actually need, and then helping them kind of figure that out along the way as best I can, even if that cuts my own throat to help them get forward right now, it'll always come back in some way, even if it's not from them in the future. I've just, I've kind of built myself around that. Hmm, that's awesome, man. I I really like the fact that um, you do put a lot of light on other people. I've seen it. I follow you on Instagram. I see it seems like majority of your content is sharing really cool stuff that I didn't know about from other people. And, you know, you start putting others first, uh, with good intentions and, um, it's going to reciprocate whether you want it or not. The other day, my wife was yelling at me because it is elk season, Brandon. And I do have like a little mini, I have an archery shop, but I don't, I, I want to say, I do not have an archery shop folks, but my dad, my 17-year-old nephew, my buddy Josh, Jake Webb, my my former cameraman, they all come piling in this time of year, and I'm like, okay, you, you need a pair of boots, I got you, you need a new backpack, I got you, you need a tune, and Alicia's like, Dan, you just spent all week helping everybody, and I'm like, I love it, and I really do, and she's like, yeah, what, what's in it for you? And my wife's not like that, but she was just like asking me like straight up, like, and I'm like, I don't know. I just feel, I just makes me feel good. And that's what I've decided. Like, why do I work out all the time? It makes me feel good about myself. It has other benefits, but I've distilled it down. I'm 42. We do things that make us feel good. And if you can do good things for other people, it will make you feel good. I promise. Well, and like I said before, you know, when I was powerlifting, even in the gym, like Westside Barbell, those are your teammates, but they're also your fiercest competition. So I, I came from a very, very competitive background. From the time I was young, um, I was a little bit different because I was an athlete, but I also read a lot. I played chess. So like my friend groups were always kind of like opposite ends of the spectrum. So that left me like on the, on the athlete and we'll say quote unquote cool kid side, I was the last phone call on Friday night for a sleepover or to come over and play basketball or whatever. On the other side of it, you know, the kids that I would we'll just go quote unquote, the nerds, the bookies, the, the chess players and so on. I was the last phone call because they thought I was either playing a game somewhere or I was hanging out with those kids. So I was always kind of a loner, but that, that kind of let me be an amoeba and just bounce around wherever I needed to. Um, but you know, it's, it's funny that that high competition drive, that I carried all the way through, uh, all the way through my powerlifting career is still inside of me, but I've had to redefine it in ways. And I was, it's funny that when I was thinking about this podcast, I used to see your stuff before I actually watched your stuff. And I was like, I developed this like competition mindset against you because it was like, okay, Sornex Outdoors, we're, we're, we got to be against the world, you know, cause that's kind of how I think about things. And it's like, this guy wants to talk workouts. We gotta, we gotta go after him or go after him. And it's like, that's such a toxic way to think because Mm. obviously it, I mean, I say that as myself because it was, it's what nearly killed me because I wanted to compete so much. So often I made everything, like personal relationships were a competition. Like people I didn't even know became competition. So for me to really kind of look at myself as a man, look at the things that I had done that put me in a place that possibly got me injured and and I'm not saying that being a bad person got me injured but that constant fire that constant drive to do more and more and more um 
to the point that when I won a world championship, I, I mean, I'm having my hand raised on a stage that I never thought I'd be standing on. And I was pissed off because I didn't do two and a half more kilos because I believe that was my potential. I spent my entire powerlifting career pissed off at everything. And I had a fantastic, unexpected, wonderful career. So it's like, how does that benefit me at all? So I started looking back and it was, I was just taking, 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 taking. And I knew that, you know, if you keep doing the same thing, hoping for a different result, that's the definition of insanity. So I had to do something different. And, you know, it, it started with my dad when I was kind of at my rock bottom. I, you know, we were, we were a bit at odds at the time. So I called him up and I just told him where I was at. And he came to see me, and one of the things, well, two things that he said that changed me as a man in an instant is he said, son, I'm sorry. Like, whatever put this stuff between us and made us feel this way, like, I'm sorry. I'd never heard the man say he was sorry, which was somewhat of an admission that he might have been wrong, because I'd never heard that either. But then, you know, the second thing he said, he said, I know you know I love you, but I should have told you every day, and I'm proud of you. And the thing is, I would go around places where he would work, like, see his customers. And they'd be like, man, your dad goes on and on about you all the time. He's so proud of you. Never, mm. ever said that stuff to me until then. And I was like, man, if my dad can change, I have to. Like, yeah. you're, supposed to follow your, you're supposed to follow your father's lessons. Well, that one smacked me in the teeth. So I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that would be. But it just started to work out that, like, a guy hit me up on Instagram. Hey, man, I'd love to work out with you one day. I don't have any money, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, let me train you. Like, let me just give you some training. And kids just started flying, like doing so good. And that was, I was like, okay, that's the pebble in the pond. Let's let these ripples start working. And it just snowballed. And everything in my life became a dedication, probably to the point where it's a detriment to the people around me sometimes. Because, like, you give too much of yourself. You know, you give too much sure. of yourself. But, like, 32 years of my life, I did nothing but take. So I still mm. got some work to do. That's powerful. So Westside Barbell is a location in Ohio that you cannot sign up for a membership. It's the Mecca for powerlifting and you can only get access to Louis Simmons and the squad via invitation only. And you trained there for more like for two years. How did you, when did you get your invite? How did that go down? Let's get into Westside a little. Yeah. So it all started around Oh seven Oh eight. Um, I was really just kind of in a place where I was making a good living. Uh, I had everything kind of in order and I was just powerlifting because I, I, I loved it and I was good at it more, more so that I was good at it and recognized as, as good at it than I loved it. I just like training. So I started doing some meets, uh, started doing pretty well regionally, a little bit bigger than regionally. So I went to a pro-am and all the West side guys were there. And I mean, I was a West Side diehard. Like I, I'd watched every video. I owned Louis' training videos. I'd, I'd talked to a couple of the guys online, which at the time, to me, you know, if I was a basketball player, it would have been like talking to Michael Jordan. You know, I'm talking to, to the world record holder in my sport. And uh, that was Greg Panora at the time, and Luke Edwards, another one, AJ Roberts. These guys were at West Side, and they were people that I looked up to and, and respected as lifters. And all of them were encouraging me, like. You got to keep going. You got to keep going. You got to come up to West Side sometime and check it out. And anybody can go there for a day. You know what I mean? You might even be able to go there for a couple of days or a week. But, you know, that door closes <laughs> at some point. So I went up there to visit, had a good breakfast with Louie, 
And I'll tell you the thing that Louie told me that changed my whole outset. Um, I've, you know, I started to develop that ego. I'd won some competitions. I'd set some state records, that kind of thing. And, you know, it's like I was the big dog on the small mountain. So I walk into breakfast with Louie at Bob Evans. That's what he did every morning. Uh, Monday yep. through Friday, he had breakfast at Bob Evans. So we met him there. It's like 545, 550. It's just me and him and Jake, the guy that I would ride up there with. And he goes, ran away squat. And I was like, I just squatted 900. And he goes, what'd you weigh? And I was like, 275. Or I'm sorry, th at this point it was 750 that I squatted at 275. And he goes, well, I ain't going to cut it. I got a 181-pound woman named Laura Phelps that squats 775. And it was like, you know, a lot of people would have gotten mad at that, I think. Like, they would have been insulted. But I was like, no, that's the man telling me it's not good enough. So that began a six-week training cycle. Um, I'd already been doing six weeks prior, but he kind of finished my cycle into a meet. Right. I was, I squatted 750 the last meet, and in 12 weeks, I squatted 900 under his tutelage. Um, Holy crap. Yeah, and it was just because uh, I had been training too heavy, so I was depleting myself going into the meet because the numbers I was hitting at six or seven weeks before the meet would indicate like an 825 or an 850 squat. But by the time the meet came, I thought, you know, you just have to be a battering ram and train as hard as you can, as heavy as you can all the time. But it's optimizing what is heavy. It's optimizing the rep scheme and figuring out how much weight to make me better tomorrow and how many reps to make me better tomorrow without destroying the day after. You know what I mean? And Louie just kind of helped me find the science in that through percentages and waves and things. He was at the meet at the pro-am that I referenced earlier. And he said, good luck. And I said, I really don't think I need it. I feel really good. And I felt fresh. I felt clarity that I'd never felt on a meat day. I squatted 900 pounds. Uh, I, set a, I, I set a bench PR and I set a deadlift PR and I set a total PR all while Louie's watching. Hmm. And Louie comes over to me and he says, he said, I can tell you, listen, um, why don't you come up and get, have a tryout and see if you make it? Well, that went well. I got the invite. Um, I'd lost my job during the recession of 08 and everything. So like life hit the skids hard. I went from, like I said, making really good money, new house, new, new truck to like, you have no job sleeping in my truck kind of thing. And that all led into going up there and just like, that was my only purpose. That was my only vision was to be the best in the world that I could be. And I got up there and for better or worse, um, because of all those struggles, I got better as a powerlifter, but I regressed as a man. And part of that was Louie coming to me one day and he said, I'd won a bench meet the day before. I'd won the meet. And Louie came to me the next day and he said, Brandon, I think you're distracted. I need your, I need your key. And I didn't understand it because it's like, I'm winning. I'm getting better. Like, what, you, what is going on here? And he said, I just think you need to get your head right and come back because you're a distraction to, to your team. So I was like, well, screw that. So I called him, I made a couple calls and got into a gym just across the, the way from Columbus that a few guys that had trained with Louie maybe butted heads or just, you know, didn't, didn't quite fit the mold anymore. Uh, one of them, longtime legend, um, ended up over there. So I started training with them and I actually got better. I was one of, I think I was the first guy to leave Westside and actually get better, like markedly better. And, that is where some of that ego stuff came in because instead of thinking, man, Louie got me to this point and him 
kind of given me a wake up call was the genesis of me getting even better. It was like, I don't need that guy. Screw that guy. So it's like mm. that. You see what I mean? It became a lot yeah. of that, that negative stuff. So the funny story, I'll tell this whole, this full circle story. Uh, I, I ended up getting better in multiply powerlifting, which is Louis domain, but raw lifting kept calling to me. It kept challenging me. And I'll tell you the reason why I, I did the Arnold. I squatted a thousand, uh, thousand eight at the Arnold. And then I benched 832, 832 pounds. Now keep in mind, this is multiply powerlifting. We had the, the assistive shirt, the assistive, assistive squat suit. And those were originally designed as protective measures. You know, it was to keep you safe, not to make the lift more egregious, but that's like <laughs> anything, you know, whenever they started putting, uh, turbos on cars, they started drag racing them faster and harder as, as fast as they could go. So it's the same kind of thing. It's it's kind of like an arms race. So I benched 832 in a bench shirt, and it was the fastest bench press of my life, like the fastest bench press of my life. And while I was proud of that, it also showed me that while I'm getting better, I had a 570 bench press raw at the time. Um, the the gear is going to be the deciding factor in who wins and who loses more so than the person. If you can, because there were guys who couldn't bench 400 pounds that were benching 900 pounds because they just focused on the gear and learning and manipulating the gear. Not saying that's right or wrong. That's within the sport. I'm just saying it didn't appeal to me for the same reason. So I went raw and I start lifting and doing pretty well. And Mark Bell invites me to his backyard meet of the century. Well, actually he didn't invite me. I, I kind of called him out and told him that I wanted to come and he makes a video and he says, yeah, we got this hick from paint lit Kentucky coming out here for last place well dude that ain't oh. all over oh so i put it in my rear view mirror i put it on my bathroom mirror i put it in my gym coming to california for last place so i go out there end up winning the meet right and it took a 800 uh, it took an 800 plus deadlift to win the meet it was my first 800 plus deadlift in competition and louie had told me i would never pull 800 pounds if i left west side so there was three lifts and a thousand kilo total, a 2,204 pound raw total was on the line with the 800 pound deadlift. And it was in kilos. So it was either 799.7 or 804.7. So, and I knew that if I pulled 799.7, Louis would look me in the face and say, that's not 800 pounds. Cause it's not. Yep. So I had to go the 804, which could have cost me the meat, but I ended up pulling it, ended up winning the meat. And the coolest thing and the most respect I ever gained for Louis is uh, he sent me a message and it was an email like the next morning. He must have got up and seen the results and like messaged me the next morning. And he said, hey, kid, great job on the deadlift. I knew you couldn't do it without Westside. And I said, what the hell do you mean, old man? And he messaged back. He said, if I hadn't asked you to leave, you'd have never gotten your head on straight. And you'd have never done that. Westside forever. You know, and that's like, that's damn. pretty damn cool. You know? That's sick. And yeah, so we had, we had butted heads. We'd had differences. Um and and like with that's the guy that's the gatekeeper and he asked yeah. me to leave you know i didn't take a look at myself i just pointed the finger at him and he was right i was i just needed to get clarity and going to the other gym was like there's not going to be another gym like this one so you better straighten up and the gym owner over there danny day who's a great guy uh he told me he was like most guys get three strikes right he's like well you got two and a half walking in the door so it's like 
play it straight, and I did, and it it worked out until I moved back to Kentucky, and everything just went well from there until I got hurt. But again, every time I've fallen, I've gotten up better. So that's that's kind of where I'm at today. This podcast is brought to you by Matthews Incorporated, Vortex Optics, Onyx Hunt, Peaks Equipment, Kufaru International, Magview Wilderness Athlete, Buck Knives, Crispy Hunting, Stealth Cam, Marsupial, Born Primitive, Baku, Black Ovis, and Hard Work. Back to the podcast. Man, that's incredible numbers. I mean, it's tough for us normal humans to understand that. Um, but I guess let's talk about raw powerlifting a little bit. Um, yeah. What? What? Give me your best numbers raw. So this, guys, this is no gear, but obviously, like, you can wear a weight belt, but you can wear wrist wraps, but you can't wear gear, like a bench shirt, squat shirt, right? Like, so what are your best raw numbers? Uh, so in competition, that's all I really cared about. So 843 squat. Uh, 602 bench press and 840, 843 deadlifts. Okay. How tall are you? I'm 6'2". Oh, you're big. You're, you're, I did not think you were 6'2". Okay. Yeah. You're, you're, so, uh, when did you decide to get on the sauce to do, you know, at what point did you add hormones to the ability to recover faster? I mean, I, and I said it that way on purpose guys. I, I brought in a recovery angle, not a, you don't take that stuff in and just get strong. You got to go do the work and you have to put in the materials. But like, yeah. at, at what point did you make that jump? So I'll tell you the story on that because it's, kind of it's kind of a funny story, but you are actually right. Um, the drugs themselves, the hormones, the steroids, the anabolics, they do not make you stronger. What they do is they increase the body's ability to function and process protein and synthesize those more effectively so you one have to stimulate the muscle you have to feed the muscle and those substances do not make new muscle out of nothing they don't make you strong without lifting so it is definitely a boost a significant enhancement but it is not deemed like you said uh, what people think it is it's a it's not a do nothing get result you will get a better result for the work you do right so i did a competition I did a competition locally in uh, in Kentucky. It was a NASA event. It was a drug-tested event. Actually, at this point, I was still living at home in college. My parents were so, were so kind of backwards and overtaken by the media stuff. Creatine was a steroid. Anything that came from GNC was a steroid. Um, and, and not that they were ignorant people. They just wanted to kind of protect me from yep. that stuff. Yep. So I had bought some protein. I had brought, bought some 5-HTP some uh, creatine and some GABA. And I was taking these going into my meat. Like I grew up on whole food and that's what I still live and prescribe today for people is whole foods as a source, supplements as a supplement. So my protein shake was right after training. The BCAAs were right after training. Creatine was during training, whatever. And I remember coming home and my dad had like put them out on the counter and he said, pour them down the drain. So I, that's, that's how natural I was. Like I, was my parents were against any supplementation whatsoever. We didn't even have Tylenol and Advil in my house when I was growing up. Okay. So, so is that kind of, that kind of raising, right? And, uh, I go to this meet, I see the guy that's doing the weigh-ins, doing the registration, and he's a state record holder in the state. 
And I looked at his numbers and I was actually at 19 years old, 219 pounds. I was going to break this grown man's bench press record. Well, he was a big bench press fanatic. So I go in at 19, 219 pounds, raw, drug-free, uh, uh, 660 squat, 440 bench, and a 670 deadlift. And the 440 beat his record. Well, when my drug test came down, it was one of those dip tests. It's just kind of like a, it's like a litmus test of where your hormone ratio is. It's supposed to be six to one or less if you're a man. Okay. I've always, always to this day, even after all the, the hormones that I took and I went on that deal to like just balance out before I got on TRT, they wanted to look at my blood work. My testosterone was actually still registering at a normal level, even after all the years. So my doctor said, I can tell without a doubt that as a human being, you were born with a higher testosterone level. Like you just, you look that way, you perform that way as a kid, the numbers and the story that I'm about to tell you. So I was outside that range at 19 years old, not even allowed to take protein in my own household, right? So they gave me a ban based on, it said, substance protocol. So it was a ban. They took my records and it went in a magazine that I failed a drug test. So I was like, you know what, if I'm going to be guilty of something <laughs> I didn't do, then I'm going to do it. Watch and me that's now. The total, that's the totally wrong way to approach it. And I hate yeah. that that's the reason that I started. But I was a pissed off 19-year-old kid that just busted his ass for a record that was taken from me over some guy that got mad that I beat his record. I, I believe that. I won't say that that's what I believe, but I think that, you know, he probably made a bigger stink about it than it, than it had to be, you know, like it embarrassed me pretty bad, you know, as a 19 year old kid coming into a sport and somebody says you failed a drug test and like your parents are there and, and they made you throw away your protein. So now they think I'm lying. So it was just a bad time. So I was like, well, I will show you all. And that, that was the problem with my powerlifting is my entire career was I was trying to show somebody instead of just being happy for myself, you know? Yeah, now that chip on the shoulder is a blessing and a curse, right, man? And honestly, I, it's the razor's edge, man. It's what keeps me sharp, but it's also the thing that cuts me, you know? I, I get it. I totally get it. Um, dude, you're so strong. Like at age 19, I was into powerlifting at age 19. Your numbers, like I still to this day have never benched 300 pounds. Um, I don't, I still haven't squatted over 400 pounds. And I still haven't pulled quite 500 pound dead. And uh, I'm okay with that. But man, there was a lot of years in my life where I just was like pretty obsessed with those, those benchmark numbers or whatever. So when did you, and I guess guys, we'll get into hunting, but I, I love this conversation. When did you get exposed to the conjugate method? Was it that back into the six weeks with Louie or were you doing some sort of rendition? Yeah. So I started training. Uh, well, I started training. That's a really cool story, but it's a long one, so that's a whole nother podcast. But uh, okay. I started training. I started training in high school uh, with a coach on the football team. He kind of he saw I was going down a path, pulled me into the weight room, and just really kind of showed me how to get better. He was like, "You can go out here in the world and you can destroy it, or you can build something." And he was like, "In here, we build something." So that kind of like stuck with me, and uh, I started getting into bodybuilding actually around 2000, right after high school. You know, oh, going okay. to college going to college. Um, the weight room was cool. There were some good guys in there that were big, strong. And we had a little gym called total fitness. And this was like, you walked in and dudes lifted in blue jeans and like their work shirts unbuttoned. 
but everybody in there benched 400. Everybody in there was squatting 500. It was just like a meathead gym, right? It was a Sick. women didn't train there and weak guys walked in and walked out. Like it was one of those things. So that became like my proving ground, my stomping ground. And the coach, the owner, uh, Robbie Burns was the guy that introduced me to the conjugate method. I didn't train with him for about three or four years, but around 2004, 2003, I started seeing in the back, they were doing the chains and the bands and all this stuff. And he'd always walk down by us and be like, bodybuilders, you know? So one day he challenged me because I was a strong kid. He was like, come <laughs> back here and train with us. What you can do. And, you know, he didn't try to embarrass me or beat me up. He just actually tried to make me squat a little differently, more of the West side wide stance. And it was yeah. different. It was fun. And it was like, like I told you before we started recording, Sometimes that variability when training gets stale is all you need to keep it going. Band Amen. chains, the box, all that stuff became the outlet to give me that new invigoration for training. So, I, like I said, I was already strong. And he was like, kid, I'm going to tell you, you're going to be a lot better power lifter than you are a bodybuilder. He said, your joints are as big as a house and your, your muscle bellies are bad for bodybuilding. So, he was like, let's get you under some weight. And that was the best thing ever. He was like, he's a pipe fitter and welder. And hard-nosed dude, but just, like, generous as hell. Like, the foundation of everything I ever became started with a five-year journey in his gym, you know? Man, that still, I'm just, I don't know, Brandon. I guess your numbers, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around some of your numbers, specifically age 19, bench pressing that much weight. Um, and then to obviously pull... Wow, just the num your numbers are insane. I guess let's talk about let's talk about CrossFit a little bit because I get I definitely get shoved in that CrossFit corner because people see the style of training I do nowadays and I wasn't always into CrossFit. In fact, I was the biggest critic of CrossFit in 06. I was looking for a training methodology to incorporate into my speed school so that I could train adult athletes who had jobs and money to help like get our bottom line to the owner's liking because I, you know, I can train high school, junior high and collegiate athletes in the mornings and in the evenings. And then we got a lot of square footage. I need to bring income in during the day. So I was like investigating some group training and I had a personal training and a sports performance background. So I started dicking around on CrossFit.com and I'm like, these are stupid. Like, but I found one that looked reasonable and like any good performance coach, you gotta, you know, you gotta try it before you put it on somebody. Right. So I go, I don't remember what workout it was, but I know it was 2006 middle of the day. And I do this CrossFit workout and I had looked at the comment section and seen some people's times. I had never timed a workout, Brandon, like don't time shit. You just, you know, anyways, I did the workout. I did it competitively. I did it for time. It smoked me like cheap crack. I'm laying on the ground and I'm like, dude, that might be one of the hardest workouts I've ever done. And like any idiot, I was like, I'm going to do another. And I did another. And then next thing you know, I'm pretty hooked on this stuff. Like it's different to go back to what you just said. It, it had variants it was different than what I had been doing. And so I kind of started building this model of like a hybrid, some density training, a lot of speed, agility, elasticity work. And then I would do conditioning. I would do CrossFit for my conditioning, not for my strength. Got the bug, quit my job, 
open my own, moved back home and opened my own CrossFit gym and sold that gym in 19 or 18. I can't maybe what year, I don't know what year it was, but not that long ago, three or four years ago, I sold the CrossFit gym, but I still do a lot of conditioning workouts that are considered CrossFit. Yeah. But I also do a lot of powerlifting still. And I'm like you, I have an affinity for barbell. I love weightlifting. I'm not good at it, but I just love weightlifting. I think it's like awesome to express that strength really fast and efficiently and move well. And then I, um, I just got a lot of love for powerlifting. I don't do a ton of it, but I got just, I love a barbell and I do do bodybuilding and density training. So I'm kind of like in a weird spot in my life now where if someone asks me, what, what do you, what kind of training do you do? It's like, I'm just getting ready for elk season. I'm just trying to be good at a lot of things still. When did you decide that you probably hated CrossFit? <laughs> so I'll tell you, I'll share a term with you that my good friend Greg Walsh at Wolf Brigade uses. It's expert generalist. That's kind of what I try to be and self-defined. I try to be an expert generalist. If you want to go climb rocks, I can rock climb with you. If you want to go hike a hill, I can do that. If you want to do jiu for two hours. So that's what I'm trying to build right now is an organism that is fully adapted to whatever environment I'm in. I can function at a high level, maybe, maybe not excellence, but at a high level, no matter where I'm tasked. And I love that. that for me is a very important thing, especially after my injury and that false belief of invincibility. I have almost an overbelief in vulnerability. So now I train myself very much to keep myself strong, safe, capable, and able to protect anyone that I might choose, like to be to be protecting in a in a terrible situation. Like I hate that we even have to think that way, but the world is not a friendly place, and it's a motivator for me to train a little harder. You know what I mean? Just take care of the people you love, take care of yourself. So I found out about CrossFit very early on, just because I was in strength and conditioning. Louie had some connections with that community. My problem with CrossFit as a as a training model is if you go to one coach and you go to another coach, I don't care about their certification courses. Um, there is no gym to gym correlation other than the ones that are fed from HQ, right? And what I was seeing in a lot of the, the CrossFit gyms is you were getting undercapable coaches that were making a lot of money and injuring a lot of athletes. And the problem on that for me was, why were the injuries occurring? Were we pushing these athletes for time too hard? Or were we setting up the workouts in a successive order that was basically creating failure? You know, and that for me was the biggest problem is that there was no organizational structure to the waving of their programs. And I heard a great Marine drill instructor say one time, I can beat anyone's dick in the dirt today, but can they come back tomorrow and do better? You know, I kind of referenced that a little bit earlier. And that's to me what I saw in a lot of the CrossFit gyms I visited. There, I could look at the board and there was no there was no win on the board for tomorrow except effort and you killed yourself. And kind of like you said, you were like cheap, you were like cheap crack. You were so smoked. You know what I mean? So I wanted to see a little bit more continuity from the gyms to one another, even though like, you know, they got some of them, like the, like I said, the HQ organized workouts. I just felt like we were turning a lot of under underdeveloped coaches loose with a pen and a whiteboard, you know, and just getting people hurt. Um, the, the competition board is a, is a beautiful thing online to where you can see where you stack up, but that created all kinds of stuff too. Cause people were lying about their times. People were doing this kind of stuff. So I don't know what's going on there. I don't like 
the way that CrossFit executed a lot of the stuff. But obviously, anybody that looks at America and understands we have an obesity epidemic, I think that CrossFit has to be heralded for the community that it's built and the, and the competition arena that it has built. Um, I just think the gym to gym to gym to gym kind of basis is very lacking. Like you can go to some great CrossFit gyms and then you can go to places where it's like this place should be closed down as a training facility. Um, oh, yeah. and that's, and that's my problem with it. It's just the, yeah. the, the, the one name for a very wide meaning definition. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was my problem. Cause when you say West side, yeah. There's some variability from gym to gym, but it's West Side, or it's not, you know. And CrossFit, just like your stuff gets labeled as CrossFit, or Greg's stuff at Wolf Rate Brigade can get labeled as CrossFit, it's actually not because it's intelligent design. Not saying that CrossFit won't get you in shape. Not saying that CrossFit won't make you better, stronger, faster, more conditioned. It can, but does it have the optimum design to get you those things safely and as quickly as efficiently as possible? That I don't know. Yeah, no, that's great insight. I can't dis. I just I can't disagree. I will say, just because so, you're a nerd about this stuff, so I guess I'll go on the record as saying I'm a huge Greg Glassman fan because he's very polarizing. He's the guy who started CrossFit guys in 2001 or whatever, grew it to 12 or 15,000 locations worldwide, and he said one thing in an interview that I really like, but I think it it speaks to what you just said. He said he was asked about his certification process. And he's like, so you, the lady was like, so you don't care about like having multiple CrossFits open up down the street. He's like, yeah, we're not a franchise. The cream will rise to the top. And she's like, so you just let these guys loose after a weekend seminar. And he's like, absolutely. He's like most gyms that are opened up in your town, wherever you guys live is opened up by somebody who just simply has the money to open their own gym or the ambition. They don't have to take any classes or seminars. They can open up their whatever Globo or fitness gym without any education. And I agree on that front with Glassman. I'm like, yeah, man, you should have to do a weekend seminar, sip the Kool-Aid to be able to open a gym. But this is my butt where I agree with you. I think you need more education and experience and continue education than just a weekend seminar. You know, when I went to CrossFit to get certified, I had a bachelor's and a master's in exercise phys. I had a NSCA certified strength and conditioning specialist. And I was so egotistical that when I signed up for CrossFit seminar uh, in 2007, I skipped the level one. They had a level two. I'm like, yeah, the level one. I'm not paying a thousand bucks. I'll sign up for level two. And they didn't even have checks and balances. So I was able to sign up for level two. I show up to level two in Santa Cruz, California. And they're like, how'd you get in here? You don't even have a level one. I was like, long story short, I passed level two um, without doing the level one. But I, um, they told me I had to go do level one to get my certificate. But I do agree with what you're saying. Like, so CrossFit's done a lot of great things. I still think anyone who wants to open a CrossFit should just have to take a weekend seminar and open up and, and help America be less fat and move more. But to coach, it, I'd love to see the some sort of continuing ed, some sort of deeper dive, some more to, like way to prevent. This was my offered solution for CrossFit, and you touched on it. I saw an explosion to the point where that I could I could see 10 CrossFit gyms in Southern California and maybe a 10 mile radius, right? And what CrossFit should have done, I think as a, as a company, as an organization, 
should have looked at the people that were going to buy the gyms. And look, that's, that's where ethics come into play, right? Am I going to lose money to protect my brand? Or am I just going to let the brand filter itself up as, like you said, the cream rises? And maybe I dampen the idea of the brand a little bit, but the cream will always rise. I think if they had taken 10 owners in a 10-mile radius that had the money, that had the drive and the willingness to come together, encourage them or help them come together as one, and then structure those coaches that, that are the cream of the crop. Like, why are you going to let these people open them up, open a gym that's going to fail unless you just want their money? That's the admission that they didn't make, right? Yep. We know that some of these are going to be bad. We're going to take their money till they close. That's a problem for me because people trained at those gyms. People went to those gyms and paid a monthly payment to train there by people that they knew were going to fail them. Not the people that signed up at the gym, but CrossFit knew that some of those gyms in that area were going to fail, right? So that to me is a problem. Where was their oversight to make sure that the people who were paying the monthly membership were getting the quality training that they expected when they walked into the CrossFit brand? That for me was the biggest letdown that CrossFit could have done better on was they could have found their coach. If they can track you and every workout you've ever done, they should be able to track the performance of their coaches. You know, those people that get online at CrossFit and they fill out their times and they fill out their workout of the day, add one more question. Who was your coach? One more question. How was his performance? How do you like him as a coach? Get feedback on a one to five scale from all your coaches and then start rewarding the good ones, weeding out the bad ones. You've got a much tighter ship now. You've got a much tighter brand and a better brand. But I don't think CrossFit ever was designed to be that. I think CrossFit was designed to make minimalist workouts sexy because they can outfit gyms quick as hell, cheaply, and get them open, get them turning, get that franchise fee. And, again, this is all speculation and observation. That's what I do when I look at a business. I look at how an individual store operates, and I look at how the, the conglomerate operates. The individual stores, you never know what you're going to get. The conglomerate is making a shit ton of money. So where's the discrepancy there? How do you have an inferior product at times that's still successful at large? And that for me was like, oh, they just don't care about the individual box. They care about the individual's box payment until they go out of business. You know, and, and again, that's not an accusation. That's not a charge. That's just my personal opinion of observation. But I think it could have been a done a lot better. And I think CrossFit would have a higher public opinion if it had been done that way. Yeah, man. I We watched a lot of the CrossFit games this last week because my buddy, Kevin Kester, was competing in the Masters division. He's uh, he's almost 57. He This is his third CrossFit games. He does – I think he competes like every other year, but he's an elk hunter. And in real life, he looks like a Viking. Great dude. Really successful business guy. Great leader super humble, great archer. I can't say enough good things about him, but that's why I was watching. I don't pay attention to the games every year, but this year we're paying attention. He won. Um, I had him on my uh, podcast. We did a YouTube video. I did see a lot of comments of people accusing him of being on the sauce. And I'm here to tell you, go do iron work for 30 years. Couple that with some good genetics, some clean living. And you too can look like that when you're 56, 57 years old. Guy was amazing, but Long segue, I was watching the individual athletes this year and um, they all did a weightlifting, basically a weightlifting meet after like more than halfway through the competition. So seven or eight grueling workouts. They had ran a 5K that day for time and their 5K splits were insane. Like when's the last time you ran a 5K, Brandon? That's 3.1 miles, y'all. 
as fast as possible? Oh, um, probably three months ago. How was that? Uh, 28 and a half. Yeah, man. That sounds about me like 27, 28 minutes and that's dying. I'm not a good runner either. Um, and we're not, we don't suck either. Right? Like there's worse, but these guys were, I think the winner was sub 17 for the men. The ladies was sub 17. And then just two hours later, they're getting two attempts at a max clean and jerk. Uh, snatch then max clean and jerk and putting up reasonable numbers. Like I think the clean and jerk for the men was, was 396 for the win. Uh, the, the, the snatch was over 315. And then for the ladies, it was 265 clean and jerk. And uh, the snatch might've been 205, 210. That's, That's incredible to do that, that fatigued and unaddressed. So I do love the methodology. I love a lot of stuff about it. There's definitely some things, but I think we both can agree, regardless of what kind of training you do, do it right, do it consistent, and make sure you're having some fun. It's Training's supposed to be fun, right? Well, I'll tell you, the most, uh, the saying that I had, and I coached a lot of athletes, I'm very proud of the, the powerlifters that I coached. At one time, I was keeping track of it, but I had 27 men that I had helped total over 2,000 pounds raw. I had 18 women that I'd helped total over 1,100 pounds raw. Um, wow. I wrote the cube method, um, which that's, that's another podcast too, but it was kind of an evolved training system for raw lifters developed around some of the West side concepts. And, um, you know, I think what you're looking at when you talk about these athletes that are, that are being designed and built to do high output and then high output, that's phenomenal. And that's expressed on an, on a competition day, right? But people model after that when they're training, and that's not what you should do. You should not be training that way all the time, and I'll tell you why. So I worked with one of the SEAL teams out at Damn Neck, <clears throat> and when I was introduced to their training, uh, I meet two scientists, basically, uh, you know, exercise physiologists and a scientist and a lab scientist uh, kind of doing some observation on these guys. Extreme, extreme overuse injuries, extreme overuse injuries. And I'm like, okay, let's start doing some homework here. Well, what is your model? And the scientist who's paid 250,000 taxpayer dollars looks at me and says, well, we just use a blend of systems. And I was like, what systems? 531, West Side, going on? And he's like, well, and he just started talking about Prilpin's chart and some other things. So I, I kind of got the early indication that, like the model that I was explaining about CrossFit, they were smart. They knew the exercises. They just didn't understand the waves, the progressions, and whatnot. The worst mistake that they made is they put Navy SEALs on an RPE program. So you're asking guys that you have trained to say that nothing is too hard, nothing is too heavy, nothing is too long or far or whatever. You've, asked, you've trained them to the point that they believe that nothing is too hard for them. And then you That's go in awesome. here and say, I want you to do an eight RPE. Well, in his mind, an eight was like day three at Bud's. You know what I mean? It's like his level of understanding of what an eight is is so different than the average humans. Yeah. So I went in and I said, look, let's make your RPE an eight, 80%. Let's correlate a seven RPE to 70% of your max effort lift. So when we started doing that, the guys had a, a number, not a feeling, right? That's very specific life-saving training. CrossFit for competition is a very different thing. To get what you're talking about, having fun, what I would preach to my athletes was 
I can write you a perfect program. And if you don't know the ifs, ands, or whys about it, you won't believe in it and you will not commit to it. If you do something that you believe in, you will commit differently. And I believe at a cellular level, if you're committed to something, you're positive about something, as in positive energy, that has a different effect throughout the body too. Our entire existence on this planet is about energies. And if you are positive, if you're a positive person, it's not the secret, but I do think that it has a different impact than if you're a negative person and have negative outlook on your training. So for me, what I try to do is almost like make my training gameful to where it is progressive through the end, and then there's a test. So I, I very much value that let's put out some effort, get you fatigued, and then do something very hard at the end to challenge yourself, more, maybe more so mentally than physically, right? More of an endurance type event. Let's just pick up something heavy and walk it as far as we can for max distance. You know, just something that it's, it's a quit factor. So I get that, and I love that, but it has to be done intelligently. It can't be done every day, and it can't be to maximums. It's not like pick up 700 pounds and walk it as far as you can. It's more like pick up a 75-pound dumbbell in each hand and walk for five minutes. You know, something like that. At what point do you drop it? At what point do you feel like you're going to quit? And note those things. Because if you want to quit for the first time at a minute 17, then I know your mind threshold is a minute 17. So everything we do after that is going to be 90 seconds. Because I know at a minute 17 is when your quit factor starts. So I start weaving those things into training. That makes riding training fun for me because it's as boring as shit most of the time. But those little nuances make it fun for me, which I think make it exciting for the athlete, which makes it good for all. You know, if we're communicating in a way that I understand what you want, I understand how your brain operates, I can adapt my training to that or my, the way that I write training to that. If I just get a guy that says I want to be as strong as hell, well, it's going to be Prilpin's chart. But it's, you've got to understand what you're actually wanting from this. Do you want a number, like, do you want a 500-pound squat? Well, there's a way that you can get there, but you have to do that. Do you want to look good in the mirror, feel good, be able to do multiple things? There's not so much of a science to that. It's more of the rhythm and the feel and taking feedback from what you get today and applying it tomorrow. It's ebb and flow. And that's where I'm at right now is a lot of my training, uh, the primary resource is Wolf Brigade. Uh, his training is phenomenal. But uh, – I go through times where I just am focused on jujitsu or I'm focused on hunting or shooting my bow. So I want a little bit more of that instinctive training rather than a, a dead set reps and sets, you know, give me 30 to 40 minutes on the clock. Give me three kettlebells and a mace and I'm going to go as hard as I can for 30 minutes. I don't see an, I don't see a negative in that output. You know, my body is improving. So I think people over science themselves sometimes when they don't need to, but if you're a competitor, you've got to be precise. Dude, Brandon, you're spitting fire today. And I love that you have in the trenches experience being an athlete and in the trenches experience being an athlete's coach and helping people accomplish. That's awesome. Here's where I want to finish, man. Love talking to you. I knew this was going to be fun. What what do you got planned for hunts this year? Um, and, and are you coming out west for any of them? Like, um, and what's your approach to that? So got a bear hunt this year. Um with uh, in Washington and Idaho going to split a couple of days each place. Um, and then a lot of pig hunts, like pig hunting has become my favorite because of the recurve. I, I, I really wanted to, I wanted to improve myself as a hunter. That's the only reason I picked up a recurve. I became a better shooter and I was, if I get to 60, everything's dead. So I was shooting 60, 70, 80, and I was legitimately shooting uh, softball or less groups out to 80. 
Um, you know, you might have the odd flyer that, that touches a little wide, but I could hit a, a legitimate softball, softball size group at 80 and was just confident, confident, confident. But I was blowing stalks. I missed animals. You know, 80 yards in a softball on a piece of foam is a lot different than a living, breathing, moving target. Amen. With there's debris, you know. So I was challenged uh, to think about becoming a better hunter. And then an opportunity presented itself to get a recurve bow. And it was like, I have to get to 25 yards. So my old thinking of 60 yards is dead is now 60 yards. I'm still getting closer. And I, I hunted with uh, Nick Morton and James Dumoulos out of uh, Australia. And we went on a stag hunt in Argentina last year. I had my recurve. And Nick owns Nexus Broadhead or Nexus Arrows with Adam. And uh, he had a broadhead company at the time. So I'm, I'm thinking he shoots 100 yards, kills everything at 67. I know better. Dude, the, Austra the Australians are like, I want to get as close as I can. If I could touch one and shoot it, I would. You know? Amen. And I was like, what's the furthest you've killed an animal in five or six years? He's like, 23 meters. You know? So being around people like that changed my mindset of, like, I need to be a better hunter. And, again, to go back to my wrestling with the ego – if I'd had a compound and there was a 180 whitetail or, or elk or mule deer or anything at 40 yards, I'm shooting it, even though I told myself convincingly 25 and in. But the recurve, you can't do that. You, you can, awesome. but like it somewhat limits that thought from your brain. Mm -hmm. So I went out and I started hunting pigs, really uh, had some good insight on my build and my tune, had a lot of help with that, but testing arrows on the pigs seemed like one it's good for our property that we lease two it does the land the farmers a favor and three i get immediate feedback and lots of reps um amen i didn't i didn't want my first attempts to be on a whitetail or something like that where oh my god my equipment was awesome in the backyard but it wasn't the right head or it wasn't the right tune or it wasn't this or that so I, the pigs offered me a, a really good way to build some confidence myself in the shooting with the recurve, but also just getting closer to animals and in that contact. I shot pigs last year from one foot all the way back to 19 yards. So I, I achieved my goal in a big way. And when I hunted again later in the season with my compound and those 35 yard shots were available, they seemed like, man, this is so, this is so much more what it should have been the whole time. You know, I just got focused on the, on the shooting aspect. And now I will not say that I'm a good hunter at all. I killed a lot of pigs last year. I killed 13 animals in total last year. So I think that I am progressing to the point where I'm a competent hunter. And I mean that from packing my bag correctly, knowing what to take on a Western hunt, knowing what gear to wear. You know, I've kind of like built my way into this because um, I didn't hunt for a long time because of powerlifting. I hunted as a kid, all rifle stuff, and then yeah. come back into it. Coming back and into it as an adult, I did become like John was talking about on your podcast the other day. I became the gadget guy. I bought all the gadgets. I bought all the new equipment, the new bow, the new rest, everything. But I wasn't perfecting my shooting. And mm -hmm. the other benefit that I did get better at my shooting, I stopped shooting as much because I wasn't, if I wasn't perfect, I would stay outside all day. You know what I mean? And that became the other obsession. And to quote Tom Clum Sr., who's a great recurve guy, he does the method technology for, uh, or method uh, technique for 
recurves, he was talking about, he said, you know, the cool thing about a compound is when you shoot and you hit the X, you're like, oh, I was supposed to do that. When you do it with a recurve, you call your buddy and say, hey, man, I hit the X. You know, it's like it's a little bit more forgiving. That was appealing to me. The the hunts uh, was obviously appealing to me to gain experience as a hunter. But nevertheless, uh, pigs, bear, three to four whitetail hunts, um, still trying to pick up a maybe a cow tag or something out west um, just to see. But last year was massive. I went to Africa. I went to Argentina. I did like eight hunts in, in, out east. I went to Big Chino out in Arizona. Um, so I, I wonder how guys like you do it and uh, like somebody like Dudley or some of the bigger name guys because I wasn't even doing content, but I was on the go that much. And it was like, it became a job in and of itself, you know? Mm, so this year yeah. for me, it, and it, best job in the world, right? But it became sure. a little bit more of that slug fest instead of like, hey, I'm I'm pumped up and ready to go. It was like, I got to go again. So this year I wanted to take a step back. Pigs, get better there. Whitetails, focus on that. See if I can get a cow elk. And then next year I'm going Argentina, Africa, and then maybe West again. So that'll probably be my rotation uh one year will be kind of be a bigger year and the next year will be a little quieter white tails turkeys pigs kind of thing i um, like that yeah it, it satisfies the itch you know what i mean at least thus far mm -hmm. and like no. you guys i didn't grow up i didn't grow up around elk and mule deer so i am fascinated by them i admire the shit out of them i killed an elk out at big chino uh two years ago but you know for me and i'll answer a question that john was asked about the elk or the whitetail I love the I love the spot and stalk stuff because you're in the game, right? Yeah. You're in the game. You're able to make the play. But the thing for me about whitetails is it's like God's giving you a miracle right there. You know, as, as silly as that sounds. No doubt. No doubt. set up and to be there and to have this beast walk out into the woods to you is just a different feeling than being able to walk up to it. And both of them are amazing. Both of them take incredible discipline. Uh, in different directions really but man there's something magical to me and i think it's just that long-standing response of when you hear those limbs break and you hear those leaves rustle dude it's it's that is my elk bugle you know what i mean mm. i just yeah for you guys get fired up by that those sounds are what i love well that's freaking awesome man um i guess i gotta ask if you're coming to my state and you're hunting next to my state washington idaho um, are you hooking up with Nick when he's coming over, or are you where where are you bear hunting, man? Uh, I don't know exactly. I'm going with the guys, uh, Bear Country Outdoors. Um, Benton's the guy over there, so okay. I'm not exactly. We talked a little bit about it yesterday. I don't know the the exact area. I think it's a family place that he's got. Um, cool. So it's it's going to be some good land. They killed a bunch of bears out there last year. So what's your dates? When are you going to be up in my hood? Uh, I am coming up there right around the 1st of September. So I'll okay. make sure that I, that I reach out to you and let you know my whereabouts. If I can make any, any time or effort to get over there, I will. Okay, cool. Yeah. September. I'm usually, well, I know I'm not going to be home. I'm going to be gone. The oh yeah. Yeah. You're now. going elk hunting. <laughs> I'm gone. I'm out. You're going to, but, um, yeah, man, that's cool. Well guys, we're going to leave a link obviously in the show notes to not only Sorenex outdoors and Sorenex proper, but also Brandon Lilly on Instagram is something you should definitely follow. Super positive. So glad we finally got to meet face to face as well as connect on the pod. Thanks for your time. And I want to do this again down the road and kind of dive into some training rabbit holes with you and tap into your insight. If you're down for that. Yeah, I'd love to, man. And, and 
as a fan, you know, I want to say this too, because uh, a couple of years ago when I started watching your stuff, you know, I kind of weeded you out as a person that's really doing good stuff. Like you, you don't share bullshit. You ask questions that people are thinking that most people won't ask. You know, you'll kind of press the, the, the fire to people's feet a little bit on topics, which I think is valuable. And if anything, uh, I just think that the industry is a much more positive place than we're seeing. So I hope guys like you get their place and get the get their due. You know what I mean? So. Thank you, Humbly. I appreciate that. Guys, separation is in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one. Friends, hopefully you enjoyed that episode. Brandon, thanks for your time, uh, wealth of knowledge, and I can't wait to hear about how your season's going. Guys, we'll do the Elk Shape recap episode real soon. We appreciate all your support. You do have a lot of options when it comes to podcasts. Thanks for choosing us. Remember, separations in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one.